This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. everybody. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is Monday, April 10th, 2023. And we are joined by none other than Double Line's own, Ken Shinoda. Ken, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know Ken or haven't listened to the previous show, Ken is one of our portfolio managers here at Double Line. He heads our non-agency RMBS, or Residential Mortgage Team. Uh, those are the mortgages that are not guaranteed by the U.S. government uh, or backed by them. And also, he is in charge of our Structured Products Committee. So uh, Ken is someone who's an expert in all things securitized uh, related here at DoubleLive. And I thought given some of the uh, concerns and things that people have had within the mortgage market, it made sense to bring him back on the show. So Ken, thanks for agreeing to join us today. And it's good to have you on my show versus me having to come on yours on Channel 11. I'm going to drag you on there uh, in the next couple months. So, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. And for those of you who don't get the reference out there, Ken does post our Channel 11 news show uh, where he uh, interviews uh, folks in the industry on, on a monthly basis, gives us monthly updates as well, and recaps the markets as well. So, uh, if you haven't checked that out as well, please uh, tune into that as well. Uh, you can catch that on the Double Line website or also on our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital. So, and now that I've given everybody all the uh, advertisements for all things double line, Ken, uh, for those that haven't listened to the previous podcast, maybe uh, you could just give us a brief summary about uh, how you got into the business, uh, your background, and part of uh, uh, what you do on the mortgage team. Sure. Well, uh, I uh, went to school down the street from our offices at the University of Southern California, and I was studying um, a, a business there with emphasis finance. I thought I was going to go into real estate, and I ended up going into something real estate related, which was um, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, just kind of by chance, got an internship at, uh, at our former employer, got a full-time job out of college, and just got thrown feet first into the fire of the subprime crisis. I was analyzing uh, uh, asset-backed securities and subprime mortgage bonds. And then we went into the global financial crisis, which I joke was my my MBA. Didn't need to go back to get an MBA because uh, having lived through that um, was a really great learning experience and, um, you know, expanded my horizons away from just mortgages into other pockets of the securitized markets. And uh, started off as an analyst, went into trading, then portfolio management, and here we are today, and uh, we've all worked together now for almost 20 years, I think. Yeah, and uh, we're all, except for Sam, starting to see the gray hairs. I noticed your beard uh, last time I saw you in person a week or so ago, um, that we're all getting the, the gray hairs. Somehow Sam is still elusive. So, uh, you know, we, we won't we won't uh, make any accusations here on the podcast today. But um, for, for those that don't really know about the mortgage market, it tends to get a lot of headlines. So maybe you could talk about, you know, just kind of the evolution of the mortgage market, 
uh, different ways of uh, different uh, ways of expressing views within the mortgage market as well, um, and just you know how you've seen the evolution over time. Yeah, when the when the mortgage market first uh, began in kind of the late '70s, early '80s, it was um, all government guaranteed, and it stayed that way for quite some time. Uh, the the non-agency or the non-government guaranteed mortgage market, while it existed, it really didn't really gain any significant size till I would say like the early to mid 2000s, and obviously it got a little bit out of hand uh, towards the mid 2000s, going into the global financial crisis. But kind of the 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 main sector of the market, the agency mortgage-backed securities market, these are government guaranteed uh, packaged pools of mortgage loans. They're issued through three main entities, Ginnie Mae, which is uh, implicitly government guaranteed, and then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which, um, sorry, Ginnie Mae is explicitly government guaranteed and Fannie and Freddie are implicitly. And uh, the bonds they issue, uh, you take no default risk. So if a borrower goes delinquent, what happens is that that loan gets bought out, you get made whole, you get paid par back. And so really what you're taking on is taking on prepayment risk of mortgages, right? If you if you take out a home loan in the US, you as a borrower have the right to refinance penalty-free at any point in time. And so as a bondholder, now you are exposed to that uh, optionality that the borrower has. And for that, that prepayment risk, you get paid an additional spread over treasuries, just like you get paid spread over treasuries to own corporate bonds, for corporate bonds, are taking credit risk. For mortgage bonds, are taking prepayment risk, at least for those government guaranteed bonds. And so it's a way to, um, you know, uh, get that extra yield uh, with a different risk profile. And you can also make a view on the direction of rates. There's certain mortgage bonds that do well, better when rates are rising. There's certain mortgage bonds that do better when rates are falling. You can buy fixed rate bonds. You can buy floating rate bonds. And then you can also, as the market had developed in the mid 2000s, you can invest in mortgage bonds that don't have that government guarantee. Those are those non-agency that we call them. And you can take the credit risk and you can take a view on uh, that, that credit risk to the consumer and get, and, and, and get that exposure in your portfolio as well. So many different ways to get both credit exposure and or interest rate exposure for various different market environments that you're in. Okay, and then um, so as you think about you know using the toolkit of the mortgage market, um, you know a lot of people are familiar with some of the ETFs out there um, that really or or like the Vanguard Ginnie Mae fund that only traffic in uh, this government guaranteed component. Why should an investor consider you know expanding the universe to the non-government guaranteed, and what is the size of that market relative to? Let's call it the uh, the, the GSE sponsored or the government uh, backed uh, residential mortgage market. So the government backed markets, you know, fluctuate somewhere between call it six, seven to eight trillion dollars, depending on uh, what homeownership rates are in the U.S. It's probably closer to seven trillion right now. The non-agency market at its peak got all the way up to about three trillion. Uh, that was obviously a little bit too big. Bad things happened. Today it probably sits around five hundred to seven hundred billion. Uh, depending upon issuance. And it's kind of the same size as the CMBS market. ABS market's a little bit bigger now, but uh, most of those securitized credit markets sit somewhere between about a half a billion, sorry, 500 billion and a uh, trillion dollars. Yeah. So okay. why, why then... about adding it? Well, um, you know, you can 
you can get paid uh, a significant spread over agencies uh, today. Sometimes it's uh, more, sometimes it's less. Mm -hmm. And we've found that mixing agencies and non-agencies to together um, and, and weighting, you know, more towards credit when spreads are really wide, less towards credit when spreads are really tight. If you actively manage that mix between agencies and non-agencies, you're actually able to generate a better risk-adjusted uh, return through time relative to just if you hold the index. And you can't, uh, you know, just sit in a, a static allocation. You have to, you know, be, be nimble and, and be in the right sectors at the right time. And um, we, you know, that's what we've been doing at DoubleLine now for, for many, many, many years. Yeah, so as I run into investors today and we talk about some of the opportunities within the non-government guaranteed or what we call the non-agency RMBS space, um, people um, feel uh, really skeptical or, or they're reticent to think about it because they look at the outlook for residential housing today. And so uh, I wanted you to kind of address kind of your outlook for uh, the housing market, but more importantly, you know, what this means for those RMBS structures, the non-agency RMBS structures um, out there where you're investing in this, because a lot of people we've run into today say with mortgage rates or interest rates, which extend over to mortgage rates being high, um, that it should put uh, more downside pressure on prices. So one, do you agree with that thesis? And then secondly, you know, how would you talk to someone about thinking about investing in this space today? Okay, well, let's, why don't we start with the, the housing market first. And uh, the, the biggest driver of home prices is um, supply, demand, and affordability, right? And affordability has obviously gotten a lot worse because mortgage rates have gone higher and home prices have gone higher. But if you keep going back to that supply dyna demand dynamic, it's just so supportive of housing in the long run. On the supply side, we really stopped building single family homes after the global financial crisis. There was much more multifamily being built. So uh, there's just a, a lack of housing availability, especially on the lower end. Um, so if you look at population growth relative to um, you know, relative to housing, the housing supply on the new on the on the new production side, we're we're massively behind from a building standpoint. Uh, if you look at existing inventory, just as a metric, we're about a million units nationwide. Think about that: a million new units nationwide, relative to an ever-growing population. Going back to the GFC, we entered that with about uh, three and a half million units, and then we throw on top of that. The new supply of homes, still on top of that, five to six million foreclosures. There was just way too much supply going in the GFC. So today is the opposite picture. We've got very limited supply, and then the demographics are pretty positive. You've got uh, millennials hitting peak home ownership, purchase age, you know, household formations on the rise. So I think that that is really what has been supporting the market. Um, we are down about 5% from the, the peak in home prices that we got to last year. Um, could we go down a little bit more? Of course, uh, I think there's probably still some downside pressure nationwide, but you've already started seeing some metros flatline, stop going down. And uh, on the East Coast, especially, uh, there's places that are still going up in price, if you can believe it, Florida, Buffalo. Um, there's just a, a wave of people moving uh, to the, that southeast area in Florida, especially, that is um, propping up home prices, even though mortgage rates are high. So I'm not expecting a, 
um, a crash. It's more of a correction. Uh, many places have already corrected. A lot of the tech-centric places in the West Coast, like San Francisco, Seattle, San Jose, uh, they're down the most. They're probably down about 10, 15% from the, from the top. Uh, but again, there's that, that, that drop is starting to slow, especially as mortgage rates are coming down here. Yeah, so a couple of things that you brought up there, the um, strong housing prices being still supported despite kind of a, a big rise that we've seen since the pandemic, um, you know, tight supply and demand. These are kind of the underlying fundamentals that we heard, they're echoes of what we heard going into the GFC. Remember uh, when people were talking about how there's just a strong, especially supply and demand imbalance here, and they're not building any more house or they're not building any more land, right? That uh, for houses, that type of argument. So when I talk to people, you know, prospective clients or existing clients, they do have fears of uh, a repeat of the GFC. Can you talk about why some of the, you know, what are some of the characteristics of why we might not see that, be it you know, bank underwriting or improved uh, structure within um securities that you might be looking at yeah that's a great question sam because the last crisis was centered around mortgages uh, i think that the market is now so much safer because we got thrown into the fire and coming out of that fire there's a lot more uh, strict rules and regulations around um, mortgage underwriting right so uh first off you know you used to be able to put no money down that's totally not the case anymore. The new loans being made, you know, most borrowers are putting down at least 20%, if not more. So the average loan to value of non-agency loans are probably around 75. So borrowers are putting 25% down. That's skin in the game, right? During the, the, the global financial crisis, what we saw were borrowers that no longer had equity in their houses would just walk away because they could rent the place next door for half price. And there's not only uh, a lot of money putting being put down on new loans, existing loans that were made in the past, home prices have gone up a lot and these people have been paying their mortgages down. So uh, equity in housing is at an all-time high. So there's just a lot of inherent equity in, in the housing market, which I think decreases the probability of, probability of default for borrowers. Now, outside of just the, the safety of the new underwriting, um, the regulators through Dodd-Frank also put into place um, something called risk retention. So if you make a mortgage bond and you're an issuer of a mortgage bond, you have to keep 5% of it um, for up to five years. That's skin in the game. So what the problem with the GFC, you know, investment bank uh, buys loans from originator, packages up several loans within call it 30 to 60 days, never keeping any risk. And so there's uh, underwriting quality deteriorated because of that as well. So here through regulation, you've got skin in the game from the issuers. Most people are doing these deals or keeping the equity and you know they don't want to take losses. So I think that's a second component that makes these things, these bonds safer. And then lastly, the rating agencies, the ones that got it so wrong during the GFC that had all these bonds get downgraded, they've got also much stricter on what they require to call a bond investment grade, especially to call a bond AAA. So for example, uh, pre-GFC to be a AAA bond and what we call the Alt-A space, which isn't necessarily prime, but it's also not subprime. It's somewhere in the middle. It's probably an average credit score of around 700, 720. You used to need around five to 
what's called credit enhancement to be a AAA, meaning that there's 6% of the bonds below you that need to get totally wiped out until you get hit. Today, that same bond probably has uh, 20 plus percent credit enhancement to be AAA. So at least two times more credit enhancement to be, to be called AAA. So the safety of the, the underwriting of the loans has gotten better. The safety of the regulation has improved the risk characteristics. And then lastly, the, the requirements by the rating agencies have also made it much safer too. So everything just around the manufacturing and the packaging of mortgage loans is way safer than it was uh, pre-GFC, even when we would say underwriting quality was good in the early 2000s, were even better than those good days, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so when you think about kind of the evolution too, um, talk a little bit about the evolution of like the security types or, you know, the, the kind of different ways to kind of span the non-agency universe today. Yeah, well, let's go back to pre-crisis. We used to basically categorize by credit quality. You had uh, prime jumbo, which would be loans that are bigger than the conforming limit to go into the agencies. Those are, uh, we would call jumbo prime. Then we had alt A, we just talked about that. That's that kind of like middle of the credit quality spectrum. And then lastly, there was subprime, um, which was something like 620 FICO plus or minus would fall into the subprime realm. And subprime, really picked up steam starting in the early 2000s and then it exploded into the kind of mid 2000s going into the GFC largely because of the the CDO collateralized debt obligation market that fueled it since the GFC things have um, we, we've kind of packaged up new types of collateral first off there really is no more subprime in the non-agency market there are subprime loans being made they're being made by the government through the Ginnie Mae program so the largest subprime originator, in America is now the government backstopped by our taxpayer dollars. Um, so there really is no subprime in, in the non-agency market. Uh, we still have jumbo. So if I look at newly originated loans, there's either jumbo prime, there are agency eligible investment investor loans, right? somebody that is renting a house out um, as an investment property, but it doesn't, it's eligible, but there's only so many loans you could send into the agency market. So they, they can also get securitized in the non-agency market, really high quality. And then lastly, it's something new called non-qualified mortgage or non-QM. Um, and it, it doesn't mean subprime. It doesn't mean scary. It just doesn't fit a box that's been created um, to be a qualified mortgage. And if the loan is non-QM, it has to be, uh, you have to have this risk retention thing under Dodd-Frank. And there's a couple of different things that make a loan non-QM, um, uh, certain debt to income ratio over 43, uh, a certain coupon above the agency uh, loan market, uh, and then documentation. That's the really, that's the main one that the market is settled in on is basically, you know, people that don't have full doc. And these are a lot, a lot of times they're uh, self-employed. And so the market goes and they look at bank statements and, and things like that. And so if you can you can go to the non-agency market, and this is the first part of the market you look you can look at. Jumbo Prime, investor loans, non-QM, they all um, have different types of credit risk. I think the credit risk is relatively low. So that really comes down to what type of prepayment risk that you want to take. Um, the other new thing after the GFC was uh, credit risk transfer. Uh, Fannie and Freddie 
wanted to offset some of their credit risk. And so they take they took the bottom 5% of their uh, credit risk on you know portfolios of multi-billion dollar portfolios of agency loans, and they create a credit linked note. And so you can take credit risk of agency quality loans, very high quality loans, and you can buy investment grade risk off of that. You can buy below investment grade risk off of that uh, profile as well. These are floating rate bonds. Uh, and it's a great place to get that floating rate exposure. Uh, we, when it first came out, we thought there was some better opportunities out there, but more recently we've gotten more constructive on it and have been adding some exposure on that front. So that's called CRT, credit risk transfer. And then uh, the, the third kind of prong in the stool, I would say, is um, legacy loans. So these are loans that were made in the past. They could be non-performing and they could be re-performing. Um, they can they they get sold by the uh, Fannie and Freddie. They always have reperforming and non-performing loans on their balance sheet, and uh, they get bought by private investors who then package them up into bonds. So I would say those are the three main sectors of the market: kind of new origination collateral, credit risk transfer, and then legacy loans. There's other esoteric parts of the market like um, mortgage servicing right bonds and things like that, but it's such a small market part of the market. I'd, I'd say for investors to just focus on those three is where they're going to get their main exposures. Yeah, and in listening to you, I mean, you're really opening the universe outside of these kind of traditional paths of, of what come from the government when you're talking about these non-agency sectors. And so, um, you know, one thing that's, you know, obviously been on a lot of investors' mind in the last month or so is the fallout from some of the, the banking crisis that we saw. And so, you know, thinking about implications for the residential mortgage market, uh, are there any from what you've seen from some of these uh, bank failures and some of the stress we still see out there with some of these um, uh, other banks, too, that are, you know, kind of struggling to retain depositors and the like? And how are you thinking about that and effectively what the implications are for the residential mortgage market? Yeah, I think mainly the concern right now that the market had, but I think it's uh, it's past perhaps, is that a lot of what these banks own and what caused problems weren't necessarily their non-agency book. It was their agency book, right? Um, banks have to own a certain, certain amount of uh, high-quality assets, treasuries, agency mortgage-backed securities, and uh, a lot of them got huge deposits. Uh, during the you know the pandemic and the year after with the, a lot of the stimulus checks that went out and they had to go out and buy bonds. They could make loans, but a lot of them just bought bonds. SUB just bought too many relative to many of, many of their competitors. Um, and so the concern was that you know FDIC took over some of these banks and they'd have to sell some of those assets. Um, they did take over the banks. They will have to sell some of the assets, uh, but they're going to do it in an orderly fashion. Um, Fire selling mortgage-backed securities is not going to solve the issue that plagues not just S3B, but many of the other banks. It would just create more stress in the system. You know, they set up that new financing facility, the BTFP, where you can, if you're a bank, you have bonds that are at 80, you can finance them at 100, um, where normally you would finance them at less than 80 because you'd have to put up some um, uh, equity haircut. Uh, why would they be doing that on one side and then fire selling assets on the other side to depress prices? So I think that risk is pretty low. Um, I think the, that one thing that has happened though is that uh, credit creations, a lot of these smaller banks also you know, originate mortgages. I think that credit creation 
is uh, going to slow down here. So I think that, you know, if you used to be able to go get a more competitive rate, perhaps at a regional bank, you know, you move some money over into a checking account or savings account to take, you know, 25, 50 basis points off your rate. I think that type of activity um, will decrease. Um, so maybe some of that needs to get pushed into the into the bond market and get originated as a, a non-agency loan as opposed to a balance sheet loan at, at the banks. Yeah, so in going over kind of the, <laughs> the, the three prongs or the three-legged stool there of, of the non-agency mortgage-backed market, I, I noticed you didn't mention second liens and HELOCs anymore, so that's nice to see that those kind of things aren't really in the playbook nowadays. Uh, but can you talk about some of the the scenario analysis that you run when you're trying to look at these these credits to determine what types you think might be more favorable you know what are some of the underlying drivers of future performance is, is it all the same is it just do borrowers have to make continue making their mortgage payments and everything will be fine what are the different uh, points of analysis across those different areas of the non-agency market as it stands today sure um yeah i mean it's it's all pretty simple. I have a funny story that I was with our colleague Morris Chen, who runs Commercial Mortgage-backed Securities Group here, and we uh, we went to go see the the family office of a one of these big quant hedge funds out there. You know, hundred billion dollar quant hedge fund, and they were they were doing some stuff in loan origination, which is why we're there to talk to them. And we, you know, we we walk in there, and I look at Morris, and I'm like, God, oh, there's we got all these uh, programmers coding and. You know, they've got all this uh, statistical models are running to 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 pick their positions. And I'm like, our business is so simple. We just want these people to pay their mortgages. Just pay your debt back. You know, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. It's just, you know, it, are they going to default? And if they default, what's the loss going to be? And so um, that's what we do uh, is we try to predict a range of prepayment outcomes. And we try to estimate losses on these pools. And we're lucky that we have a lot of data that allows us to go back through time and look at cohorts of uh, loan characteristics. And we can see that, you know, obviously credit score is a big driver of defaults, uh, but then loan to value. Loan to value was one of the most important drivers of defaults going through the GFC. You could have had a high credit score borrower that had a very high loan to value, meaning they didn't put any money down. If it was over a hundred, and a lot of those borrowers defaulted, even though they had a really high credit score. So what we try to do is we try to find what we call layer, layered risk, where not only is the credit score low, but the loan to value is high, um, and maybe the debt to income is high. And uh, what if you look at that layered risk characteristics, it is so much lower than what it was pre-GFC across not just non-agency market, but also the agency market. Because the 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 rating the, the rating agencies and also the you know the government sponsored entities Fannie Freddie Jeannie Mae figured out that okay if the person has a low credit score uh, let's make sure that they not they don't have a high LTV and a high DTI let's make sure that well maybe if their credit score is low uh, then we'll make sure their LTV is low and their DTI is low and that'll decrease the risk and so I think that. That's another thing that has helped the marketplace is just an improvement of those layered risks that are out there. So we we see bonds, we look at the collateral, we use the collateral to you know, help us determine prepayment expectations, determine default expectations, and then we run those cash flows through what we call the capital structure of the bond to see if those bonds will take losses. 
And uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, we feel that the uh, underwriting of the loans are so strong, the structuring of the bonds by the rating agencies is so robust, and then throw in this risk retention thing, the skin in the game, that investment-grade bonds in the, in the RMBS space, we think have, you know, I don't want to say never, but or none, but it has very, very little remote default risk. It's all about prepayment risk on those assets. And then if you go into the below investment grade portion, we think that there's a really good risk-adjusted return story, you know, especially if you're buying at the right price when spreads are wide. So that's kind of what we do. We look at the collateral. We try to uh, um, run those cash flows and figure out what those cash flows are going to be, run conservative cash flows, and then and then see how those bonds hold up into different scenarios. Okay. And so as, um, you know, uh, Sam's been focusing more on the credit side of the equation. Uh, can you walk our listeners through kind of the impact of the Fed's policies over the last decade or so? And what I'm referencing here is the low interest rate policy, the quantitative easing, um, definitely post-pandemic, they revisited the playbook, the Fed's balance sheet expanded immensely. And some of those purchases were heavily concentrated in the agency mortgage market. So can you walk us through what that's done to the dynamic of the mortgage market, if anything? And secondly, as we go through this balance sheet runoff or quantitative tightening, what are the implications uh, of that on the mortgage market as well? Great question. So what's really interesting is um, what's happened with quantitative easing and kind of the mix of assets in the universe. So if you look at the mortgage benchmark, for example, it's kind of like a pro rata slice of the universe and rates move through time, they go up and down. So mortgages are made with various coupons through time. Um, and so that's, we call that the coupon stack, right? So you can buy a bond that's got a coupon of two, Fannie twos, we call them. Um, these are bonds from Fannie Mae that have a two coupon or you can buy Fannie fives, which are bonds from Fannie Mae that have a five coupon. They were made at different points in time. Uh, but rates got so low and stayed there for such a long period of time that so much of the universe of mortgage borrowers has a coupon of probably three, three and a half percent, which are packaged up into bonds with coupons of those two, two and a half percent, Fannie twos, Fannie two and a halves. So the index happens to just, because of time passing and where origination was, it owns a lot of twos and two and a halves in the index. So if you buy an index fund, you probably have two thirds of your exposure is in the Fannie twos and two and a halves. Guess who else owns Fannie twos and two and a halves? The Fed. The Fed was doing QE during uh, the creation of all these bonds when rates were low. And so the Fed's balance sheet, two thirds of it is Fannie twos and two and a halves. Guess who else owns Fannie twos and two and a halves? SVB and all the other banks. So not only was the Fed buying them, all these regional banks are buying them because they have to buy high quality assets. So it's really hard to get the exact number, but if we were to guess, guesstimate, uh, we would think that there's only about something like 15 to 20% of the float of Fannie Tune and two and a halves available to buy. And the prevalence of indexation in the market broadly, not just fixed income, but equities as well, has created um, this demand by indexers to buy Fannie twos and two and a halves because they're in the index. So they actually trade the tightest out of all the mortgage-backed security bonds that are out there. And, you know, to be fair, uh, in normal times, lower coupon bonds do trade tighter than higher coupon bonds because they typically have less 
prepayment risk, but I think that they're exceptionally tight today because of this dynamic of demand from indexation relative to the availability of that bond in the marketplace. So this, this period of time right now in the mortgage market, active management, and I know it sounds self-serving because we're active bond managers, is so important so you can extract the, the, the cheapness of the MBS market. Because you see a lot of articles out there about mortgage spreads are wide. That's true, they're wide, but the spread being quoted is what's called current coupon spread. It's that new origination bond that's being made around par. They're not quoting the spread on Fannie 2 and two and a half, which is what an index portfolio would own. So I think right now, um, QE and the, you know, the bank demand for those bonds during that certain time period has left us in a, in a, in a, in a state where to really extract value, you got to kind of be out of index right now. And so uh, that's, uh, I, it wasn't too part, I know it was in depth, but what are the implications of QT on the other side? And so as the Fed is trying to reduce its balance sheet, what do you think happens to said Fannie twos and two and a halves? Or what do you think happens to the overall market? And how do you think about positioning around that? Uh, that, that was a very uh, a frequently asked question, I would say, before SVB, where everyone's saying, well, what about what, what happens when the Fed needs to sell the mortgage-backed securities, even though they came out multiple times saying they're not even thinking about it and they don't need to sell mortgage-backed Not even thinking about thinking about it even, too, right? That, that's that's Powell's favorite phrase, right? <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you always get the hater that wants to argue with you that you know they're gonna they're gonna sell the MBS. And my response was really, why would they sell them? It doesn't do anything uh, to to fight inflation, right? Like mortgage spreads are already wide, mortgage rates are already high, so pushing mortgage spreads out another marginal, let's call it 20, 50 basis points, doesn't really help them fight inflation. That's why they're just focusing on the Fed funds rate, right? And um, you know, that also would lock in losses on the balance sheet. So I just thought that, you know, my opinion pre-SVP was, I don't think they're going to do it unless they really want to tighten financial conditions because, you know, they, they took rates up and they just can't get the economy to slow. Maybe they would sell MBS to push spreads wider on everything, right? They would push spreads wider on corporates and, and whatnot. But now with SVB, they're adding Fannie twos and two and a halves to their balance sheet through financing operations, right? Um, they're, they created that BTFP uh, facility. So they, they're actually adding mortgages to their book. They're not, they don't own them directly, but they're financing them. So uh, it would be very strange, I think, where they're financing the same asset through that BTFP facility, and then all of a sudden, you know, selling them on the other side. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So um, I think that, um, you know, the, the QT, they'll probably just continue the natural uh, roll down or unwind of the balance sheet, meaning that they'll just let prepayments and paydowns pay those mortgage bonds down. Um, but I don't think they're going to sell, especially after the SVB incident and, and now having to finance the same asset on the, the other side. So um, I don't think that there's a risk of um, big sales from the Fed. Uh, I also don't think there's risk of fire sales from the FDIC. I think it's all going to be kind of a slow, methodical um, process to keep stability in the marketplace, which is also, I think, one of their goals, right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot, you know, you covered a lot today. All the stuff that you talked about across the, the, the various sectors of the market, you know, tie that all in together for your outlook for the rest of 2023, how you're positioning for it, you know, as a portfolio manager here at Delamine and, you know, what, what looks attractive in your market? What are you buying? 
Yeah, I mean, look, it's, I think it's going to be a rocky 2023. Um, you know, there's while there's definitely signs of slowing growth, the job market seems to be stubbornly resilient, which is, you know, why the Fed uh, potentially may have to hike again. We'll, I guess we'll see um, when, when May comes along. Uh, but the spreads have widened so much, uh, and especially the short-term rates, I know they got all the way up to five and they've dropped, but they're still pretty high relative to history. So if you focus on bonds that are at that front end of the curve, uh, you're getting paid more yield because of that inversion relative to longer securities. And uh, there's a lot of room for that short-term rate to fall. So you can buy AAA mortgage bonds with a spread of around, call it 200 today. The tight was probably around 80 or so back in 2021. And you know, you're talking about a 6% yielding two-year bond where uh, if, if spreads were to widen, let's call it 200, 200 basis points, which um, is a lot to go from 200 to 400, you would think that really bad things are happening and the Fed's on its way to cutting. So I think that that front end of the curve gives you a lot of protection, not just because it's short duration, and so your bond doesn't move much in price relative to changes in yield, but also that there's probably the most room for that part of the curve to fall. And so you could see a scenario where while spreads are widening, rates are falling maybe even more, and you could end up with uh, strong total returns even into a you know spread widening recessionary type scenario. So that, that's kind of where our focus has been is shorter duration, um, and uh, we, you know, we're, we're finding uh, no, you don't have as much need to go all the way down the capital structure anymore. Even if in a, even in a portfolio that's higher risk, where you were buying double Bs and single Bs back in the day, and you would, you, you know, you get four yield to buy the single B. I mean, you can buy six yield for the AAA. So I think that uh, across all portfolios, there's a theme at double line of going up in credit quality um, and uh, creating more protection for our investors. Well, Ken, uh, that was excellent too. As always, you, you had a way of distilling this down, a very complex concept, but really making it accessible. So I want to thank you for your time today. Um, also want to uh, make sure that we plug all of your publications and everything out there too as well. So where can people get access to, uh, to Ken Shinoda's latest thinking out there here at Double Yeah, check out uh, Channel 11. Uh, we do a monthly, either a market update and or sometimes we've got guests on as well. And uh, uh, appreciate it if you uh, check it out. All right. Well, um, and, and again, you guys can skip the episodes where Ken makes me come on there as well and, and give updates too, because, um, you know, they, they get double duty here. Uh, but uh, before we let you go, Ken, there's one part of the show that I don't know if you remember, but we call it Sam's favorite part of the show. Yeah, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. Again, it's where I'm going to ask a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman to elicit a top of mind response. Paved the way here, I'm gonna give the first one to Sherman with FDIC deposit insurance. I mean, isn't that what FDI stands for almost anyway? I mean, I'm just saying there's a lot of redundancy in there. Um, important, necessary, and the cost is likely to go up, although uh, consumers won't really see it. It's always been a cost in there, and that cost you pay through lower rates on your savings rate. So I think what's what a lot of people have noticed as of late is that 
the banks shockingly were not paying them the same amount of rate they could get from from lending just to the U.S. government short term through T-bills. And I, I've noticed that that seems to be changing a lot from a lot of the ads I've seen as of late. So, um, you know, FDIC, it's important. Uh, it was created, you know, to, to kind of stave off some of these runs on the banks. And um, that's that's what it's still intended for. Yeah, I'm getting the basis point on uh, the savings account at my bank there. So it's... <laughs> yeah, well, that, you're getting you're going to get rich. So that's one reason that you keep working, Sam. Is that that basis point of savings probably isn't going to compound out very well over time. That's right. Uh, all right, over to you, Kenny, with uh, bank stress. Haven't seen the end of it. I think I think that there'll be probably. Um some more uh, sh shoes to drop or whatever the saying is, um, especially with some of the commercial real estate debt that some of these banks hold. Um, I remember there was one bank that was like on the cover of some uh, uh, periodical because they were like the largest construction lender in America, something like that. So I don't think we've seen the end of it, but I, I do think things have calmed down um, pretty, pretty well here so far. All right, back to you, Sherm, with quantitative tightening. Uh, like the Energizer Bunny, just keeps going and going, and um, and like the Energizer Bunny, we don't talk about it anymore, right? So um, you know, uh, it's just it's all going on behind the scenes, and it, it's going to continue until uh, until the Fed has to change something. All right, Kenny, rating agencies. What's there to say about rating agencies? Uh, they've they've uh, they've gotten a little better at a little better at their jobs. Um, but every investor should still do their own analysis and don't just buy something because they tell you it's investment grade. So that's uh, that's what we do here at Double N. All right, back to you, Sharon, with AI. A lot of hype. All right. I guess, you could, uh, I, guess I need AI to give me a better <laughs> answer to that too. So uh, obviously I don't use it. So there you After go. After I give it to you, I thought you might go with Alan Iverson as I was thinking about it. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, great, great thing. Great show. The no crossover one on uh, Netflix. Check it out. Uh, Kenny, terminal rate. Almost there, I think. We're almost there. All right, Sharon, debt ceiling. Almost there. Uh, as Ken just said, but uh, it will get expanded, and uh, especially if we have a crisis. So, I, as I tell everybody, overlay the the debt ceiling with the amount of debt spending, and take it back through time, and the lines are non-discernible, right? And so, it's political grandstanding. I think this one's going to be contentious, but it still gets done uh, because you know these you know these political representatives. They have constituents that have government jobs. If there's no extension, there's no payment of the wages. So at some point, it has to get done. It will get done. And I still say it's all political grandstanding. All right. Mortgage rates. Going lower. Jobs. Going higher. Wrap this up here, Kenny, with money market funds. Sell them and buy some bond funds, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, money markets are competitive. Ken talked about the inverted yield curve. We've seen that. And, uh, you know, that, I think it's big, one of the biggest things that I've ran into with investors is saying, like, why should I buy a bond fund when, you know, the highest part of the curve is, uh, you know, is the front end of the curve and, and money market funds uh, yield more uh, than, than kind of the back end of the curve. And I tell them, well, if bad things happen, you want to own duration. And by way of example, look at what's happened since March. 
right? Since the banking crisis, you wanted to own that. And so there's reasons to own both. Uh, your cash probably shouldn't be sitting in a savings account today unless you need it in the next day or two. It should be sitting in a money market fund. So there's a place for both, as Ken said earlier. Uh, so I, I know that was your question, Ken, but uh, your buy bond funds maybe have to come and put a cheap <laughs> plug in here as well. Well, so. you know, we 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 all own some T-bills too. It's been, a, yep. it's been a good place to hide. So I can't, hard to argue with it. That's right. That's right. It's all about asset allocation, right? So, uh, all right. Well, Ken, thanks again for your time today. This is Ken Shinoda, portfolio manager here at Double Line. Um, in addition to that, he's head of our structured products committee, has his own uh, channel here, channel 11. Uh, if you didn't get the reference there, channel 11 is double lines, right? The one and the one make uh, double lines there too. So Ken, always great talking to you. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with the with our listener base today. And again, uh, tune in for our next episode coming soon. Uh, for those of you who didn't watch us on the YouTube, you can catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, a um, bunch of other things like iTunes, uh, Google Play, stuff like that. So again, uh, Sam's always keeping updated list and I always forget to read it. So uh, th thanks for doing the work, Sam, that I I'm not uh, giving you credit for. So take care to all our listeners. Tune in soon. We'll have another guest coming on uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Ken just reminded me about the commercial real estate market. It means we need to bring on Morris Chen as well to talk about updates on there. So look forward to having him on in the near term to talk about what's developing there as well. So thanks again, Ken. And to all our listeners, have a great day out there and good luck. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, double line capital.